glory in Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in John chapter 1, John chapter 1 today, so if you'll turn to page 1220 in the Pew Bible in front of you, if you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, we'll be on in John chapter 1. Now, we'll look at a few verses before we get there, but we'll land in John chapter 1 here in just a few minutes, so turn to John chapter 1. So, when I go shopping, you know, it's uh, the in-between of Black Friday and uh, Cyber Monday. When I go shopping, I like to go for a reason. A lot of you guys especially would agree with me, right? I know what I'm looking for when I go in, and I'm on a mission to get that, whatever it is that I'm going to to buy. Uh, I've already researched it. I already know which store has the best price. And I want to get there, I want to get it, and I want to move on, right? Can I get an amen? Then I'm on a mission to check out as fast as I possibly can. Is anybody else with me? Right? I want to find the shortest line or the most efficient register. Right? There may be a longer line, but they're blazing them through. So I I want to be the most efficient. I have a plan. I have a strategy when I go shopping. Now, I would say, I would guess that... Probably a lot of women had a plan this last Friday. Yeah? No? Black Friday shopping, right? You, know, you go to this store, you have this strategy, I want to get this deal, this door buster, and so I want to wait in this line. I heard you know, different people saying different things about lines that they waited in. We were shopping a little bit Friday. It was around lunch, and uh, I heard a lady say that she had started shopping the night before. So she had been shopping since a little before midnight. Now, this is lunch. This is 12 o'clock Friday at lunch. And she had been shopping since midnight on Thursday. Now, I don't know who was open at midnight on Thursday, but she was there. She shopped so much, she said. Now, I'm just, this is a passing conversation. I just heard her talking. She said that she got a hotel room in Gulfport for a couple of hours to take a nap so she could shop again Friday morning. That's commitment right there. Apparently, she's from out of town. And, and so she, took, she got the hotel room, took a nap, got back up, and went shopping again. Now, it's Friday at lunch. Mind you, she has been shopping for 12 hours. 12 hours. She has this strategy, right? She even had like the, you know, shop tea drop shirt on or whatever, special made. Like she was ready. She was committed to it. Now, you know, guys on the other hand, I'm, I'm sure there's some guys that, had a plan this week too. Some of you maybe got up early, went to the perfect spot for the perfect deer. Um, maybe you got up late and ate leftovers from Friday or Thursday, right? You had a plan. You had a strategy, especially Thursday for the food. You know, I want to get this on my plate. I want to get, you know, we all have these plans. So have you ever considered the fact that what is God's plan for your life? Right, we have plans. I'm a planner. That's my nature. So everything is is a strategy. It's a plan for me. That's just how my brain works. It's how my heart works. God made me that way. I'm a planner. Okay, so if you go somewhere with me out of town, there's a plan. If if I'm doing something, there's a plan. Okay, but when you think about God's plan for your life, have you ever really thought about that? What is what is God's plan? And whatever you think God's plan is for your life, you have committed to accomplishing that. I guarantee you that. You've committed to accomplishing whatever it is that you think God's plan is for your life. Now, here's the problem with that, is everybody kind of has a different ideal about that. 
Right? We, some people think one thing, some people think another. So we got a lot of people globally in the church that have an idea of what they think God's plan is for their life, and they are committed to accomplishing that plan. Right? I've been to a lot of churches. I've, you know, had an opportunity to be associated with different churches and preach at a lot of churches. And so I've seen a lot of different things. All right? And so when you go to these churches, you see churches that are starkly different from our church. And they believe that they are 100% accomplishing God's plan for them in their situation. They believe that 1,000%. You see, whatever you think God's plan is for your life, you're committed to accomplishing it. Here's some examples. Think about it. In other words, if you think that God keeps score, then guess what you do? You try more to be good more than bad. Right? That's what you do. So if you think God's goal is for you to be good, then you weigh the scales. And you say, did I do more good today? Or if you think that church attendance, this is a big one. If you think church attendance is the goal, well, then you feel bad when you miss church. Right? Because you say, oh, well, God wants me to be there. Don't forsake the assembling together of others. And so if I don't make it to church, and that's the goal that God has for my life, and there's a lot of Baptists who believe that, well, then you feel bad when you don't make it for whatever reason. If you think that knowledge is the goal, this is another one. If you think knowledge is the goal that God has for your life, then you feel intimidated or you feel unworthy when you don't have the answer. And so what happens for most Baptists is they simply don't share anything about what God's doing in their life because they don't feel equipped to do that because they think God thinks that you have to know everything before you can do that. There's a lot of people who believe these things. You may be one of those people. You see, whatever you think God's plan is for your life, that's what you're going to commit to do. And so the question is this, what are you aiming for? What is your goal? What is your objective? You know, so many times in church you hear people say this all the time. Oh, I've been going to this church for 20 years. I've been, I've been in church for 30 years. I've been in church for 10, whatever, whatever the time is. So then the question that inherently comes to my mind is, what has God done in those 10 years? Right? It's not, you don't get a certificate for attendance. That was in the 90s, all right? We're past that now. And so the question is, what are you aiming for? You see, maybe like the Israelites, for them the goal was the promised land, right? They wanted to get to the promised land, but they wandered in the wilderness for the majority of their life. They knew what the goal was, but they just meandered around for 40 years before they actually made it. So for us, the Sunday school answer I would imagine that you would have is, well, what is God's goal for my life? Oh, well, Pastor Matt, it's to be like Jesus, which is true. Maybe you're just not sure how to get there. I think sometimes we fall into the habit of life, and we get in this routine, sometimes of even church, if you will, and we stay there. And so I think there's a lot of people that are involved in church, and again, whatever your idea of what you think God's plan for your life is, you commit to that, and then you get in this rut, and you stay in that lane for the rest of your life. It's not that it's bad. It's great to come to church. Of course you should come to church. The Bible commands us to come to church. It's great that you would do good and attempt to do good. You should do that. That's what believers do. But it's not that it's bad. It's that it doesn't accomplish anything. 
You see, when you think about and you look at baptisms in the Southern Baptist Convention, you look at, uh, you look at the growth of the church numerically versus the growth of the church spiritually. And there is a drastic difference in that. And the proof of that is culture. If we were really accomplishing the plan that God has for our lives, we would not live in the culture that we live in today. It would be different. It, the, the numbers at this point, listen, capturing the numbers, if you, if you notice, if you don't, maybe you've never thought about it. There is no number in the worship guide about how many people were here last week or how many people were here this week or whatever the number is. We don't track that. That it's not important. It's not as important for how many people showed up as it is as for how many people are mobilized, right, for the gospel. And so when you when you think about what God has for us, well, I think you know if you aim for nothing, then you'll hit it every time, right? A lot of you were off this week and you decided you were going to sleep late, sit around and do nothing, and you accomplished that because it's easy to do that. It's easy to aim for nothing. You see, when Jesus called the disciples, he called them to something very specific. He called them to something very specific. And so this morning, I want to challenge you, I want to challenge us to specifically what God challenged the disciples with. And hopefully we would all agree this morning that we're disciples of Jesus. And so if he called the disciples to this, then it's only fair to believe that that's exactly what he called us to do. And so instead of aiming for nothing, we're going to leave today with a target. We're going to leave with a goal. You see, in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 19, Jesus said to the disciples at the very beginning, Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Very simple, very clear, right? James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, the first few disciples that Jesus called, he called them, and it was very simple command. It was follow me. Right? So, you know, back in biblical days, they, they had teachers, and Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. And they began to follow him, and they began to learn from him. And Jesus said, if you do that, I will make you fishers of men. Now, I've said this before. It's certainly true and a little funny. But I think what we've done is that we've gone from being fishers of men to keepers of the aquarium. Right? It's true. We've become keepers of the aquarium. And so we've decided that the goal is church attendance. And if we can pack these pews out, then we've accomplished God's goal for our life. And that is, in fact, not true. That is not true. You see, Jesus said that we would be fishers of men. And that's what God called the disciples to do. He called them to follow him. And in the process of following him, they would impact those around them. And those people would, in turn, follow him. Jesus. It's a very simple model. We complicate it so much, but it's very simple. Let me say it again. Jesus called the disciples to follow him, and in the process of following him, they would impact those people that were around them so much to the effect that those people would then follow Jesus as well. What are we aiming for? You see, when you study the life of the first disciples, here's what the Bible says about them. It says the names The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew his brother, James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother, the sons of thunder. 
Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Matthew chapter 10. All right, this is the list. You count them. There's 12 disciples. Jesus called them, and again we know in Matthew chapter 4, he said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Okay? Here's the 12. Now, Today, the one that we're going to zoom in on is the last one, Judas Iscariot. You ever heard a message on Judas Iscariot? Right? You think about Judas. When you think about Judas, what comes to mind? Immediately you think betrayal. Immediately everybody thinks that. And so with Judas, when, when you think about him, well, you don't read a lot about Judas. He doesn't make a lot of appearances in Scripture. Here's a guy who spent a great deal of time around Jesus and God's people. How did that turn out for Judas? Do you see that attendance doesn't equate into fellowship? You see that? How did that turn out for Judas? Well, not very good. You know, there's people who say, oh, and maybe it's you. Oh, well, Judas went to heaven. He repented, okay? Well, then why does the Bible say that it was better that Judas had not even been born, right? If it didn't say that, I might would go with you. But that's what Scripture says. And so here's Judas who was aiming for something. Clearly, attendance was one of them. Well, what are the results of following Jesus supposed to be? What is that? You say, all right, well, if it's not church attendance, well, then what is it? I mean, Judas was named as the disciple in Scripture. He spent three and a half years with Jesus. Okay. As we've discussed over the last several weeks, what we have discovered in the four series is that Jesus is radically for us. Amen? Jesus was for Judas. Okay, don't, don't mistake in this today. Jesus was for Judas, who at the very beginning, when the disciples were named, it describes him as the one who betrayed Jesus. And yet, Jesus was for him. You read at the Last Supper that Jesus washed Judas' feet, the one who he knew would betray him. See, Judas was a very common name in the first century, Judaism, and there's seven additional people that are mentioned in the Gospels and in Acts that are named Judas. But what you discover when you study the life of Judas is that he looks strikingly similar to many church members today. I want you to think about this, okay? I want you to think about this. Judas liked to be around the things of God and the people of God. He was at all the things Jesus did. He saw all the things that Jesus did. He knew a lot of church words. Church words. He knew the right thing to say. He knew when to say the right thing. He was trusted. Right? He kept the money. He kept the money. In a lot of ways, he looked just like the other disciples. Remember at the Last Supper, the other disciples were not even sure who would be the one to betray Jesus. Remember, he says, one of you is going to betray me. And they're like, wait a minute, is, that, is it you? Is it me? Right? They're confused as to who it would be. You see, for Judas, I think all of these things being around God, 
uh, saying the right things, being trusted, I think it created this security for Judas. A false sense of security, albeit, but it was a sense of security. And so if you have your listening guide out this morning, I want to remind us today that there is no salvation by association. There is no salvation by association. You know, even in the baptism video, Brooklyn mentioned her grandmother and how her grandmother spurred her to faith. You see, knowing someone who knows Jesus doesn't make you saved. Sitting next to someone who knows Jesus doesn't make you saved. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And for whatever reason, the Bible's not very clear on it, Judas did not have a personal relationship with with Jesus. You see, in every single D group that I've had over the last five years, every single one of them, God has placed at least one person in my group who thought they were saved, but in fact were not, and they ended up getting saved during the year. Every single year that's happened. So what does that tell us? In every story of those baptism videos of the guys that were in my group, these guys were around the gospel. But the gospel was not in them. They were around the gospel, but the gospel was not in them. Is it possible that people spend the majority of their time aiming for church attendance or being good or you fill in the blank, whatever you think it is that God expects of you, and they commit their lives to doing that, and yet in the end it is discovered that they were in fact chasing some elusive thing that God never intended, that it was actually very simple, that Jesus said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And so the result of following Jesus is that you would be a fisher of men. Is that possible? Right? Can we be open to the reality that Judas spent all this time with Jesus and yet he didn't spend eternity in heaven? He was, in fact, not following Jesus, yet he was around those that were following Jesus. I think there's certainly a group of people who are around the things of God but are not following God. You see, remember, when we aim for nothing, you're going to hit it. So, what is God's plan? Well, in Matthew chapter 22, this is what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 22, it says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus was asked, what is the goal for humanity? What should we be doing, Jesus, right? We're doers. What should we be doing? And Jesus said, love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I want to remind you that Judas was present when Jesus said this. If you look at Matthew uh, chapter 23, the very next chapter, verse 1, it says, Jesus then said to the crowds and to his disciples, Judas was there. Judas heard what Jesus said. Judas heard Jesus say, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. You see, 
there is a difference between being associated with the gospel and being impacted by the gospel. There's a difference in being associated and being impacted. You see, Judas listened to what Jesus said, but he never applied it. You see, what Judas never did was this. As I was studying this week and praying about what we would discuss today, Judas never loved his neighbor as himself. This is the difference. If you're looking for a difference, this is it. Judas never loved his neighbor as himself. Have you ever spent time thinking about what it means to love your neighbor? I know we've talked about it many times and you've heard many interpretations, but I want you to think about it this morning. Have you ever spent time thinking about it? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Does it mean to bake pies for the person who lives close to me? Maybe. You see, there's been many interpretations as to what Jesus meant. Who is my neighbor? We had that question in a small group a month or two ago. Who is my neighbor? So there's lots of ways to approach this. But what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? Well, here's one thing that I realized about this statement this week. That for me, for you, to love someone as myself means that I care about them It means that I care about their well-being and I care about their nourishment. I care about their nourishment. Here's the deal. The Judas model is to only care about your well-being. This is so true. The Judas model is to only care about your well-being. You ask questions like this. Am I getting my way? Am I being fed? How many times have you heard that? Oh, I don't go to that church anymore. I wasn't being fed. I don't like the music at that church, or I don't like the preaching at that church, or whatever. Do I like what I'm being fed? Right? Judas, the Judas model is I'm only concerned for me. I'm only concerned for what I get out of it. Have you noticed how quiet the room is? It's because it's true. We are all guilty as charged because what Judas was only concerned with was Judas. Remember, he complained when Mary used the ointment to wash Jesus' feet. He said, you know how much we could have gotten for that? You know how many people we could have fed, right? Judas was concerned that he might not eat tomorrow because she wasted all that stuff in his mind that could have been used to benefit him. The Judas model is that I only do what benefits me. I don't sacrifice, I don't give beyond time, effort, energy. I'm not doing for others as I would have others do for me. You see, we're committed to our own well-being. Everyone in this room is. You're so committed to your own well-being and your personal nourishment that you eat three times a day without fail. Your stomach gets hungry even when you're not hungry because you've trained yourself to eat three times a day. You are absolutely committed to your personal well-being and nourishment. And to love your neighbor as yourself is to apply that same metric to others, that you're committed to their nourishment. You're committed to their well-being. You see, Judas was not. Judas was more interested in himself than his neighbors. Judas was more interested in being counted than in being connected. He was more interested in being counted amongst the disciples than being connected to Jesus. You see, to love your neighbor as yourself is to care for their spiritual growth. 
You may have to help me up top. To love your neighbor is to care for their spiritual growth. That you would be concerned, not only do they know Jesus, but are they being fed the things of God? Right? In contrast, from Judas, Jesus presents an entirely opposite model. As I thought, as I thought about this and what it means to follow Jesus, there, uh, there's a list a mile long, but I, I just thought of a few things <coughs> that we see in Scripture that talk about someone who's following Jesus. Let me remind you of a couple. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creation, Right? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Of some of such you were, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I can't help but speak of the things of which I've seen and heard, Acts chapter 4. A tree is known by its fruits, Matthew chapter 7. But God, Ephesians chapter 1. All these verses indicate a follower of Jesus is someone, listen to me, who has been, does this describe you? Who has been transformed by the radical forgiveness of Jesus and in response to that reality, they live out the rest of their lives in obedience to his word. That is salvation. Here's where most people stop. They think that a follower of Jesus is someone who has been transformed by radical forgiveness of Jesus, the end. That is not the case. That is half of the picture. That the response to that, the response to hungry is I eat, right? There is a response to that. All 11 of the other disciples eventually gave their lives because of such a radical change in their own life and a commitment to the reality of who Jesus is. And so we get to John chapter 1. And in John chapter 1, this is what the Bible says. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It says, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him. Can you help me up top on the slides, please? He first found his brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. And then in verse 43, the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Now, we've talked about these verses before. We've said that found people find people, right? We've talked about this. But what's interesting that you see here, what's interesting is not just what you see, but also what you don't see. What you don't see is, where is Judas? When was he called by Jesus? Did he just join in? And start doing what the other disciples were doing? Think about that. Did he just join in? Who did he bring to Jesus? Right? There's a list of first he found his brother. And then he found this person. The next day he found Philip. And Philip was from Bethsaida. And Philip found Nathaniel. And on and found people find people. Judas never found anybody. You see, what the Jesus model teaches us 
is people who have been impacted by the gospel impact others. People who have been impacted by the gospel impact others. It is natural. It is not coerced or or conjured up like uh, Judas is. You see, these disciples, the 11, they pursued people who needed to pursue Jesus. They pursued people who needed to pursue Jesus. They knew these people. These weren't strangers on the street. They were their family. Don't you find it interesting that the people that knew them the best when they were at their worst, the people who knew all they had done, and yet these were the very first people they took the gospel to. The very first people. It's it's like we've been studying on Wednesday nights. It's like the treasure that when you find it, you sell everything to possess it. You see, in the first century, believers, they created this culture that enticed those around them to the goodness of God and the joy of a relationship with Jesus. You see, I think what we've done is we've focused on the from and we've not focused on the for. You see, Jesus didn't just save us from sin. He saved us for something. He saved you for something. Listen, salvation is not the end. Salvation is the beginning. Jesus saved you for something. He saved you to work in your life. The the disciples were called to something very specific. Look, if God saved you only from sin, you would be raptured the second you got saved. But that's not what he did. He saved you from sin, yes, but he saved you for something. The disciples were called for something. They were saved for something. Jesus called them to be fishers of men. The same thing every other follower of Jesus is called to. You are saved for something. God saved you where you're at, in your context. You have the past that you have because what God plans on doing is redeeming every sin in your life for his glory in your circle. The family that you live in, it's not by accident. All the crazy uncles and the people who do the crazy things in your life, God puts you there. The co-workers that you have that don't love Jesus, the co-workers that you have that mock you or make fun of you or whatever they do because of your faith, God put you there. God saved you for something. So here's how we're going to say it this morning. Jesus is for your transformation To accomplish gospel transportation. Jesus is for your transformation to accomplish gospel transportation. God saved you for something. You see, this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So the last part of our four series today is that Jesus is for multiplication. Jesus is for multiplication. You see, God has always been in multiplication. Think about this. In Genesis chapter 1, the Bible, you're familiar with this. God created man in his own image. The image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what did he tell them to do? He didn't create them and leave them alone. 
right? He didn't create new life in you and leave you alone. He created them for something. God blessed them, said to them, what did he tell them to do? What are they created for? To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish. You know the rest of the verse, right? He created them for something. God has always been for multiplication. If you don't believe me, how do two people make seven billion, right? God is for multiplication. So what God intended what God intended to do for the first humans physically is what Jesus commands believers to do spiritually. It's the blank on your handout. What God commanded the first humans to do physically is what Jesus commanded believers to do spiritually. Right? In Matthew chapter 28, what did Jesus say? He says, go therefore, you've heard this before, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and of the Holy Spirit. What was the response of the believers to this command? Jesus is telling them to do what? To multiply their faith. And so this is what we see in Scripture. In Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, the Bible says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Look, they multiplied, Acts chapter 6, in response to the command. Next verse, Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Acts 12, 24. But the word of God increased and multiplied. It is all throughout Scripture. From the very beginning to the very end, God's intention for the believer is to multiply the natural response to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit of God all throughout Scripture is to multiply. God entrusted us to multiplication by leaving the Holy Spirit with us. That's how much He believes in you and for you. And so what does that look like for us today? What does multiplication look like? Maybe you're saying, all right, look, I've been sitting for a while, and now I want to go. I want to be involved. I want to I accomplish what God has for me. I want to be involved in what God has called me to be a part of. And so I want to give you just three things this morning as we leave of how you can start that, okay? Well, number one, it begins with looking at other people the way that Jesus looked at you. It means looking at other people the way that Jesus looked at you. I want you to think about this. Now, I have two kids. And, you know, I grew up with younger siblings. Um, you know, I've been around kids a lot of my life. I, you know, I serve in the children's ministry. I love to be around kids. But there was a difference between loving kids and loving my kids, right? When the first, when your first child is born, right? I remember when Natalie was born, and you know, Natalie, you know, for the first time we see Natalie, and just the overwhelming love and responsibility, just like the whole, it's just different, right? It's just different when you look at your kids for the first time. You realize this is how God looks at me. This is how God loves me, and it changes how you see kids. It really does. 
It changes how you see it. You see, when we look at other people the way that Jesus looked at us, you see, until we do that, we don't realize the magnitude of what's actually happened in our lives. Right? We don't understand that what new birth actually entails. What the disciples did is they had been found by Jesus. They had been saved by Jesus. They had been rescued from their sins. And in response to that, they found other people. They began to look at other people the way that Jesus looked at them. You see, for us, it's, it, it's, it looks like this. It's desire-based. Okay? The disciples desired the things of God for themselves but they desired the things of God for other people also. That's what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. That you desire for them what you desire for yourself. So as we, you know, we're about to be in the new D group season, okay? And starting in January, all new groups are going to launch. And so I want to share a couple things about that. Number one, if you are planning on being a D group leader next year, during community group next Sunday in the conference room, uh, I'm going to show you the new book, and uh, I'm gonna, we're going to preview the new layout for next year. And so if you plan on leading a D group, uh, make sure you're in the conference room next Sunday during community group. We're going to look at, we're going to look at, I'm going to give you a book for, for next year, and we're going to look at the new layout. But here's the deal. As you, if you're in here and you say, hey, I'm gonna, I want to be a D group leader, God's called me to do that. Of course, he's called us all to lead. So what I want to remind you, a couple of things. This is not about filling a group. We're going to talk about some of this next week. It's about finding a group. It's not about filling a group. It's about finding. This is not about filling the sanctuary. It's about finding people who want to follow Jesus. This isn't who will be in your group. This is who wants to be in your group. All right, as a D group leader, this is what you need to be thinking about. Not who will do this, who wants to do this. Right? I want to be around people who want the things of God in their life. I don't want to force that for you. And so the people that the disciples went to and they found for the gospel, these are people that wanted the gospel, right? They desired Jesus as well. So the question that you ask yourself is, who desires the things of God? You can't feed someone who isn't hungry. So you have to say, who desires the things of God? Maybe you're in here and you say, well, I'm, you know, I'm not ready to be a D group member yet, a D group leader. Maybe, maybe you've never been in a D group and say, well, what does that look like? Well, if you're saved, for a D group member, what that means is that you inherently desire more of God. And so you're committed to growing your faith. And if you desire to share with others what God has done in your life, well, that's the first step of being a multiplier, that you can begin to take the steps of multiplying your faith by being a part of a D group. That's what that looks like. It is a very simple way for us as a church to be multipliers. And so it starts with looking at other people the way that Jesus looked at you. The second thing is change the way that you speak. Change the way that you speak. If you want to be a multiplier, change the way that you speak. What does that mean? Well, look, in John chapter 1, we just read it. John chapter 1, look what he said at the very beginning. It says in verse 40, one of the two who heard John speak and followed. John said something so impactful in their lives that they followed Jesus. Now, if you reverse a couple of verses, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He pointed out Jesus. He directed people to Jesus. And in response to that, they followed Jesus. 
John was a multiplier. You see, change the way that you speak. If you want to be a multiplier, you have to change the way that you talk. Here's what I want you to think about. Listen very closely to what I'm about to say. I don't want you to misunderstand. John wasn't going around telling others of only what he received. Okay? He was telling others about what God gives. There's a difference. It changes the focus. Think about it this way. We just talked about shopping. If I tell you about a great deal that I got shopping, you would think to yourself, that's a great deal. That's a good job. You got up early. You found a coupon. Whatever you did, you got a great deal. There's a difference in me saying, look at this great deal I got versus me saying, Belk is selling everything 50% off. Right? Anybody can get that. And so you feel like, hey, I can get that deal. I can go down there and I can get half off because it's available for anyone. And so what we've done with the gospel is we've made it so personal and we made it so about ourselves that we've excluded some people from believing that they can have the same hope and the same God that we follow. Think about it. We have to change the way that we talk about the gospel because what we've done is so personalize it that we've excluded people. John was saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Had he taken away John's sin? Yes. But he could take away anybody's sin because God so loved the world. What we've got to stop doing is we've got to stop gathering and we've got to start scattering. We've got to stop gathering and we've got to start scattering. You have to be overwhelmed with emotion to think about the 2,800 houses that received the gospel the week of Thanksgiving. You have to be overwhelmed with that. We've got to start scattering. You see, multiplication is not sharing how much you know. It is giving of what you know. It is not, listen, if you're in my D group, this is not how much do I know. If you've been in my D group, you know this. If you're in a D group, listen, this is not about how smart are you. It is not about you sharing the information. It is about you giving of what you know. You look for the nourishment of those around you that you care enough because you were cared for. We got to change the way that we speak. And number three, invest your life, not just your words. Invest your life, not just your words. You see, not just with the things that we say, but also with our life. You see, the disciples, listen, don't miss this last part. The disciples just didn't talk about Jesus to others. They lived Jesus with others. If you come to church and you spend the rest of your week away from the people of God, you will never be transformed and you will never transport others. It won't happen. That's the power of community. God built you to be in community. Discipleship is relational. It is not something that is achieved just by hearing a sermon. It's relational. And so what we've got to do to multiply is we've got to commit to feeding. Right? It's important for you to eat. If you don't don't eat, you don't live. It's important for you to eat. But we've got to commit to taking the food that we've been given and the food that we're receiving, and we've got to start feeding other people. That's what multiplication is. If you're a child of God, God has committed to your multiplication by placing the Holy Spirit of God inside of you.
All it takes is a willingness to be used by God to love your neighbor as yourself. Stop hoarding all of the food. Stop gathering. The only way we're going to survive, the only way the Israelites were going to survive is that what did they have to do? God said, just take enough manna for today. Right? Just take enough manna for today. And we're hoarding all of this stuff. And we're saying, look at all of the knowledge that we've got. Look at how many times I've been to church. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? God created you for something, and that is to multiply your faith, that you would transport the gospel in your context where God placed you for his glory. That's why you exist. So the challenge for us at the end of our four series is to be overwhelmed by the fact that God is for us, that the creator of the universe loves us so much that he entrusted us with the Holy Spirit of God, that everywhere we go, so the presence of God goes. But with great blessing comes great responsibility, and that we wouldn't stand before God at the end and say, God, thank you for all that you gave us none of which we shared with anyone else. But that we would say, because I've been given, I give. Because I'm loved, I love. Amen? The challenge for us is that we would mobilize. That we would mobilize to multiplication for the glory of God. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? God, you've called us.